All right. So as chapter four closed out last week with Carrie's teaching, what we saw was that the people of God were in a very vigilant stance, right? They were working on the wall, but there was opposition. And so we saw them in this posture of one hand on the wall, one hand on their sword, right? They were in this like ready position. And Carrie showed us that what they were commanded to do was remember the Lord, Remember the Lord and fight. And it was, a, it was an encouraging scene where they were all next to each other on the wall, the perfumers by um, the common people, by the priests, by the Levites. They were all working together. And we got to see this sweet picture of unity. And Carrie, uh, one of the things that stuck with me all week was this idea of, isn't it great to be, some, be part of something bigger than yourself? I don't know if you guys were picturing yourself as like softball superstars all week, but I was. I was like, yeah, I could picture myself on that softball team with Carrie. It was awesome. Um, so it's so fun to be part of something bigger than ourselves. The people of God were, were being taught that. They were experiencing that as they were jumping into God's promises coming to fruition. As you guys worked through your books, your homework this week, um, a lot of what you looked at was this idea of fearing the Lord. That is something that we've hit on a couple times, I feel like, in our studies, um, but it's something I'm always uh, trying to understand more. Um, the analogy I always go to is, um, you know, my dog, Shaquille, not obeying me because he doesn't fear me. Well, why doesn't he fear me? Because I don't train him. I am so inconsistent with him. And so when I call his name, he runs away from me. He keeps his distance. But when Matt calls to him, who trained him and disciplined him, who has put the fear of Matt into that little canine soul, he obeys. He draws near when his name is called. And that is a pretty stark difference if you have been in my house and watched my dog disobey me. Um, That is how I understand the fear of the Lord, right? This is a sweet definition that... um, That is from a woman named Paige Brown, who does a sweet teaching on the book of Nehemiah. She explained the fear of the Lord as the awe, reverence, honor, and worship demanded by the majesty of God's person, his power, and his position. The fear of God is not the fear of a hard and unrelenting master, but it's the fear of offending the one who provides for us who delights in pleasing us, like the one might feel for a father or a mother. It's not the picture of a dog cowering in the corner from a master that beats him, but it's that, that carefulness and that posture that we find where we, where we say to ourselves, I don't want to offend the one who is my Lord, the one who provides for me. So as we go through the text today, we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord, but what I have been led to, to focus on this morning is hopefully some uh, different perspectives than what was covered in the homework. You know, I trust that you guys have done your prep work and you'll talk about it some in small groups, but there is, there's even more that I think we can learn from five and six. Um, and this was with me cutting it down over and over again, because there is so much here. I, we could have spent weeks in each chapter. Um, So let's look again at the text and see what we might learn. So as the wall is progressing and as the breaches are being closed, the attention of this book moves more toward the people of God. We've talked about from the beginning that this story is not really a story about a wall. 
right? It's not just about a wall. It's not just about a city. It is about God's people. And this, in these next couple chapters, we're especially going to be focusing on that. We've watched the wall be rebuilt. We'll see it get done-ish today. And now we're going to watch the reform of God's people take off. So at the beginning of chapter 5, what did we see? Well, we see that Nehemiah is now going to have to um, intervene in some conflict between God's people. So the subtitle at the start of my text says, Nehemiah stops oppression of the poor. So what did you guys see this week? Well, we see that the, the people of God are in some financial strain. They are struggling financially. And why is that? Well, a lot of, there's a couple different categories there, but a lot of what's going on here is that um, the people have left their farms to work on the wall, essentially, right? So they have left their homes kind of in the countryside outside of the city of Jerusalem, and, and their farms aren't being tended to, so they don't have anything to sell. They don't have anything to feed their own family because they're working on the wall. So what's happening is they're going into debt, right? That's what happens when you run out of money is that you start going into debt. So they're mortgaging out their fields. And what has happened is that who they're in debt to is to other Jews, other people of God. And the people who are maybe uh, giving them a loan are, are exacting interest on them. They're not being generous. Uh, and they're even going so far as to taking their sons and their daughters as slaves. Saying, sure, I'll give you this money so that you can keep providing for your family, but you're going to give me your daughter as a slave. And so there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of need within God's people. So what is Nehemiah's response to these people coming and, and bringing this to his attention? Well, he's angry, right? This is another time that we get to see Nehemiah as the passionate feeler. He is so angry that they are doing this towards each other. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So what does he do? Well, we see that he takes counsel with himself. I think that means he chills out for a second. I don't know. I don't know what the, the Hebrew translation of that is. But he takes counsel with himself, and then he brings the charges against the people. So the people that he's probably most angry with are the wealthier in the, in the crowd. You know, maybe the people that could have helped him stay secure in his position as a political leader, right, as the governor. So we see here that Nehemiah is, is very passionate about God's people taking care of God's people. He, he cares that they obey Deuteronomy 15 that you guys saw in your homework this week. See, God had made a plan for his people to care for one another. Right back at the beginning when he was saying, hey, you've got a lot to know about me, and you've got a lot to figure out as you figure out who you are as the people of God. So I'm going to lay it out for you. And so in Deuteronomy 15, that's what he does. He lays out this plan. You are to take care of each other. You are not to exact interest. You are not to give a loan. You are to give gifts to one another. Care for each other as God's people. Nehemiah is angry, and this is such a big deal to him that what we see him do is actually stop the work on the wall. Did you notice that? Like up until this point, it's just been like work, work, work. We've got this vision. We've got these provisions from God, so let's be on the wall. Let's work. Last week, Carrie mentioned that the work um, kind of slowed down, right? They're pulling all-nighters, guarding against the enemies. 
They're gonna have one hand on their sword, one on the wall. I mean, that just slows down the work. And she encouraged us to have faith when progression slows. Well, Nehemiah takes it a step further now. He actually stops the work on the wall. He stops the advancing forward, that awesome feeling of progression, because this is a big deal to him. This is worth stopping for. Why does Nehemiah say that this is worth stopping the wall for? Well, I think it's because, as we have seen, Nehemiah has a very big vision of who God is and what he can do through his people. Okay, That is what drives everything for Nehemiah. He has a big, clear vision of who God is, and that is where he draws all his motivation and his directions for how to lead these people. He knows God's word. He knows what they're actually commanded to do. And he understands that there's no point in building a wall to keep the people safe if they're not safe from each other inside the wall. What's the point of a wall to keep out their enemies if they are each other's enemy, right? If they are not treating each other as God has commanded them to, as brothers and sisters, as one family, as one people, there's no point. So get off the wall. We're going to have a talk. And he directly communicates with them. He calls them out. And then he even brings the Levites, the priests in as he wants the people to say, okay, we won't do this anymore. Well, what's he saying by doing that, by bringing those priests in? He's saying, you make this promise to God. This is even bigger than you just making the promise right here to your brother saying, okay, I'll give you your child back. I'll give you your fields back. He's saying, this is way bigger. Isn't that true when we have conflict with each other? This is important, yes, but if we don't realize that we need to make our covenants with God, we need to make our promises with God, then this doesn't carry as much weight, this horizontal relationship. Nehemiah had a great vision of who God was and what he could do through his people. It would have been detrimental if he would have let them just keep building the wall, right? It's like... In the hospital, you don't, when, like on a, on a surgery floor, times that I've been on the surgery floor, you never want to close up, to suture up a wound on infection, right? You never want to do that because what will happen? We close that in on the body and that infection will spread and it will cause death. This is what would have happened if the wall would have closed in God's people maybe firmed up their identity, made them feel confident and safe, but inside it is an infection, a, a caustic disease, something that would spread and lead to death. You don't want to do that. And so what do we see in our own lives? How can we apply this lesson from Nehemiah? I think we need to understand that the fear of God greatly affects how we treat each other. Right? What we think of God determines whether we fear him or not. Whether we fear him or not will greatly affect how well we love one another, how well we work through conflict, how generous we are with our grace. 
So the first thing we have to do then within this application, and I know we say this all the time, but we need to know who God is. So the focus of our prayer time has to be on God, talking to God about God. The focus of our Bible reading time is to discover who he is far before we look for the application to just get through our day. What do we see? What, what was maybe Nehemiah thinking about God that drove him to, to be so extreme in this situation? I think he knew that God is just. God cares about the underdog, the oppressed, those that do not have a voice. He did not just care about the nobles and the officials, but it was the people who were in debt that God cared about. Nehemiah seemed to understand that God is a God of justice, and that led him to behave as he did. What did he understand about God's people then? He understood that God's people are supposed to be one body, right? It was not okay for them to be in debt to one another, to be putting heavy burdens on one another. I thought this week of Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a, man- in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. See, the progression is when we start to understand who God is and we understand our identity better as well. Our independent identity, that we are a beloved daughter of God, but also our corporate identity. Paul is saying here, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. You have been called to be a royal priesthood, right? So the way that we treat each other then is not in a way that causes divisions, but in a way that we understand that we have been freed, right? See, what's going on here? God's people have been in exile, They have been slaves in Persia for 70 years. And now God has brought his people home. So they're free. And what's happening is now they're going to their brothers and sisters and they're slapping chains right back on their ankles. They're taking away this life of freedom by putting heavy burdens, by putting them back into debt. See, Nehemiah understood that God's people were called to be free. And they need to live as free people. Just as we earlier saw that Nehemiah understood that exile is not the final chapter for God's people. But that God is now moving in redemption and restoration. When we look around at each other, do we believe that for each other and treat each other accordingly? Am I believing for you that exile is not your final chapter if you are in a tough season? Am I believing for you that you were called to be free? So let us not use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but let's serve one another in love. This is who we are corporately, women. It greatly changes how we treat one another when we fear the Lord, when we understand that he is just. 
Guys, there is no point in a wall if we are not safe with one another. If we do not believe the best of one another and treat each other like liberated daughters. Let us abandon this exacting of interest with one another. How do we do that? What are the ways that we exact interest with one another? You'll talk about it in your small groups, but a couple things that are in my mind are that when we, when we calculate or portion off our grace, I think I use that phrase a lot because I think I'm guilty of it a lot. I'm going to deal with you in grace just to the amount that it's comfortable for me, right? And so instead of just lavishing God's good grace on you, I'm going to just give you enough where I still feel safe and where I'm pretty sure you won't hurt me. Rather than freely forgiving, honestly and, and in a healthy way, communicating with one another through our issues. What are ways that we put burdens on each other? I think when we treat, when we have expectations on each other that we should only have on God. I think that this can happen in women especially. In general, I feel like we, we are more relational. Our friendships matter a lot to us in every season of life. And I think where that can get unhealthy is when we put this burden that you have to be the perfect friend to me. You have to never miss when I'm having a bad day. You have to always respond the right way to me. You have to be inside my mind. We can do this within marriage too, right? And what we're doing is we're making that person be an idol, be a God, thinking that all of our satisfaction will come from, from our friends, from our spouses, from our connection group, whatever it is. And we are in that way burdening other believers in Christ. Let's move on then. So Nehemiah goes from dealing with this, this conflict and he expands on it. I see it by contrasting his own behavior. So in your homework, you looked at what Nehemiah, uh, what his pattern had been for a couple years. So he's been serving as a governor for 12 years. And we see starting in verse 14 that he lays out what he has done. So this is still in the same vein as we need to get healthy inside this city. We need to treat each other correctly, motivated by the fear of the Lord. And so what did we see that he has done during this time? Well, it says that the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. He says, I'm not taking the paycheck that is due me. He says, I don't take land that is totally due to me. In addition, he says, I also persevered on the wall. He's not just there barking commands. He is actually scraping his knees and getting dusty because he is laboring next to these people on the wall. Then he says, even more, moreover, I spread a table for 150 people, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And he goes through and he shows like he spreads this Feast. He throws parties for the people at his own cost, likely from the money that, that he got from serving in the palace of Persia, taking that, 
that wealth that was once his and giving it to the people of God. Why was Nehemiah able to respond this way? Again, the fear of God. How is it that he has this fear of God? I think he knows God's character. And here what he sees is God is generous. God is just and God is generous. Nehemiah has shown us consistently every chapter, he is remembering God's big picture story, right? And we'll see this even next week, but he remembers where they've come from, how generous God was with all of the patriarchs. Because he has that accurate view of God as generous, he is able to be generous with the people. We said that fear of God greatly affects how we treat one another. Fear of God also greatly affects how we define generosity. I mean, wasn't it enough that Nehemiah left a palace and came and lived in kind of the ghetto of broken down Jerusalem? I mean, wasn't that enough? Couldn't we sing his praises for doing that? That was a big deal that he left the comforts and the position of privilege and came and got to work and became a manual laborer. But he does even more than that. And this is where we get to, throughout all of Old Testament, pause and see the stamp of Jesus. And maybe you already saw that in your study. I hope that some of you did. That we stop here and we say, oh yeah, Nehemiah is starting to remind me a lot of Jesus. That type of Christ. Alex defined it as like the stamp of Christ there in the middle of the Old Testament. This morning, I turned to Luke 11. And I'm just going to jump over, jump through a couple portions. These are Jesus' words. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to wealthy Jews. He's talking to lawyers. People who have it all together on the outside. And here's what he says to them. He says, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Then a little bit further down, he says, um, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. See, Jesus chastises the Pharisees, the people who put these heavy burdens of law-keeping and instead, what do we know that Jesus says? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Nehemiah's reformations of the people of God scream to us about the gospel of Jesus. They point, they hint, they scream about Jesus. 
Jesus, who has an eye for the underdog and the oppressed and the unseen and the unheard and the hurting. Jesus, who is our definition of generosity, right? Jesus, who fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 with just fish and loaves. The gospel that tells us that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. The same Jesus who on the day before he hung on a cross had a table spread before his disciples to celebrate the Passover with only one item missing from that Passover spread. No lamb. Remember that? It was from a sermon several months ago. Jesus is reclining at this Passover table with all of the typical Passover dishes, yet no lamb. And he gets up and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. This is how Jesus prepares for his death. This is how Jesus is saying to them, I am the Passover lamb. I will spread a table of my goodness before you, like Nehemiah. And the cost will be my blood. See, much like Nehemiah, who spread a table for 150 people, 150 Jews, Jesus, at his own cost, spreads a table for us in the desert, in the presence of our enemies, and someday in the new heavens and the new earth where he says that we are invited to come and feast with him, to eat and drink good wine, not Aldi wine. (laughs) (laughs) This is the stamp of Jesus in Nehemiah chapter 5. Jesus came and got on the wall when he donned human flesh, as we've already seen. He comes and he lifts the heavy burden of perfection off our shoulders, puts it on himself, and then he allows us to dine on his goodness, to feast on who he is, and he washes our feet. He serves, just as we see Nehemiah serving. Let's keep moving through now to chapter 6. So what you guys studied this week is in chapter 6, there's, there's another round of opposition, isn't there? So what happens is that um, the wall is, is getting close to being finished. There are no breaches left in it. And this makes the enemy quite nervous. This makes the bad guys pretty anxious when they see that there is no breach left in it. And so they come with another wave of opposition, trying to deter them from work, trying to stop them. See, when when God's people are living in freedom, and when God's people are living in unity, the enemy gets nervous. And that's what was happening here on the walls of Jerusalem. The breaches were being being closed. Well, what what is a breach? We've seen this word several times already in the first six chapters. Well, picture a breach, right? It's an area of weakness. It's an area that the enemy can get in. 
These breaches are being closed physically, like literally rocks and, and mortar and bricks are being put up. And the enemy is beginning to understand that these people are about to be safe and formidable within the walls of Jerusalem. So we've seen lots of different opposition in these first couple chapters. What have we seen? Remember, right at the beginning, we saw that the enemies, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah specifically, they uh, discredited the people of God. Remember, they say something like, if even a fox jumped up there, it would fall over. That was in the early weeks of Reconstruction. Essentially, he's saying, this is not significant. There is no way that the work that you're doing is actually going to count for anything. We see them come back and discourage the people of God, make them afraid. Well, here in chapter 6, we see two more attacks. What we see first is that they try to distract them. They say to Nehemiah, why don't you come and meet with us? Why don't you come to these fields, to the plain of Ono, Oh, no. <laughs> that just came to me. <laughs> right? They say, come, come get off the wall. Let's just, let's talk about this. It's kind of like he's saying, there's got to be a compromise. Right? There's got to be a way that we can all work together. So he's distracting them with this new idea, this fresh idea. They discourage him by taking his reputation and trying to drag it through the mud, trying to say to Nehemiah, Persia is not going to trust you anymore because we're going to tell them that you are in this for yourself, that you are rebelling. Remember we talked about how they were villainizing Nehemiah. And then they played to even, the Jews aren't going to be able to trust you. And a little bit later down on in the chapter, what did we see? We see this last scheme, this deceit. So another nice alliteration. The opposition comes in the form of discrediting, discouraging, distracting, and deceiving. Just a few of the ways that the enemies, that the darkness tries to get us off the wall, that tries to stop us from working. Well, just like the first two points, what is Nehemiah's response? In contrast to chapter 5, Nehemiah essentially says, this is not worth coming down for. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when it was problems within God's people, when it was disunity and hurt and heavy burdens between God's people, Nehemiah got off that wall and had a powwow. But when it's the enemy coming, what does he say? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. That's a sweet line. I am doing a great work and I come, I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Why was he able to respond this way? I think there's a lot here, but what I took away, what I feel like we need to hear this morning, Nehemiah, despite this great work that is coming to this climactic ending, Nehemiah understands he is not God. He is not God. He is a governor with a lot on his plate. God has given him a big job description and a big vision. But he is not about to rival God and try to fix every problem, try and micromanage anything that may come up against it. 
Essentially, he is saying, I am going to let God deal with my enemies. He's saying, I am going to trust God with my reputation. I don't need to hop down and make sure everyone still likes me. He will not be distracted with the fear of man. How is that even possible? Because he fears God. This was not worth coming down for. He was not moved by the fear of man because he feared God. Who knows what was written in between these lines? Who knows what Nehemiah was was battling inside his own head and inside his own heart, right? As he's on the wall, these people came like five times. I mean, they just would not stop trying to distract him and discourage him. And Alex made the point that maybe there was a time when he trembled as he realized how fragile the construction of our external lives are. Maybe there were moments there where he did feel super frail. And maybe he had a moment of awareness of how very precarious and fragile human reputation is. I get that. When I'm up on this metaphorical wall, I am often very tempted to hop down and make sure everyone still likes me. But do you know what might happen if I try to control like that? If I get off that wall, I actually am gonna make a bigger mess. Because in that time, I'm not fearing God, I'm rivaling him. I'm saying, I got this. Not only can I do this great kingdom work of trying to raise three boys to love and fear God, but I can also come down here and make sure status quo is good, right? To make sure that, that there is nothing threatening my popularity, my reputation, my sense of control. Because Nehemiah feared God, he feared nothing else. He kept his head down. He kept his hands on the wall. He let God deal with his enemies and his reputation. And he says in verse 13, For this purpose he should be hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. Ladies, what are you afraid of? What shakes you to the core? What makes you feel fragile? Is it your reputation? Is it even your life? I mean, Nehemiah's very life was threatened. Is it the loss of finances? Nehemiah probably felt that. He's feeding 150 people every day. Is it fear of conflict? You just absolutely hate fighting and quarrels. What is it that you fear? And do you notice a temptation to control when those fears rear their head? See, a progression I see in my life all the time is that when I am afraid, and, quote, 
act in this way, I sin. What Nehemiah is referring to there in verse 13 is what you guys looked at in your homework. That this last example of opposition was this deceit from the enemy. They pull someone else in, someone seemingly innocent, to kind of jump in on their scheme. And this man says, Nehemiah, they are going to kill you. Let's hide in the temple. Let's hide. You'll be safe there. Now, if I was Nehemiah and I was the leader of this big God vision, God kingdom project, I'm thinking, yeah, I totally deserve to go in there and be safe. God wouldn't want me to die. I'm the ringleader. I have a great work to do. But what is the only thing that can trump our fear of death, our fear of loss? It is a fear of God. Nehemiah had this understanding of how holy God was. He had an understanding of God's law, which said that only priests could go into that temple. He was not about to make his own rules and his own exceptions. He did not think that highly of himself or that little of God. He kept God high and mighty. And because of that, he did not let his fear prompt him to take control and act in this way and sin. What are you afraid of that is tempting you to control? We lie to ourselves when we think we have control over something or someone. We don't. Sometimes I actually think fear can briefly be this really healthy moment where we're acknowledging that we're not in control. And that allows us to surrender rather than to clamp down and try and control whatever it is that we're afraid of. Ladies, we are doing a great work. Most of these great works are unseen. Right? Most of these great works maybe haven't even been articulated in our small groups during this study. But God has invited us as his people to be part of his big story, to build the people of God, to raise up this wall one living stone at a time, as it says in 1 Peter. We are doing a great work. We cannot come down to try and control our own life. Let's stay on there. Let's stay on there by each other, remembering and encouraging one another that we are free and that because of Jesus, the burden is not heavy, but it is light. <laughs>